I begin reflecting this morning about the good life. We're starting a series on 1 John, and what I felt drawn to is to call this series The Good Life, because it's my belief in the Gospels and in the Scriptures that God is calling us to the good as he sees the good for us, and that far too often we can find ourselves experiencing the challenge and the temptation when something comes across us to embrace it. This is good. This is great, except It is not what God desires for us. And that we get so caught and confused, chasing down different hopes and visions, where at the same time, we are neglecting the fact of embracing the good that God has intended for each of us, each one of you, for myself included. That we are so caught up, and there are all kinds of ways this happens. It could be disappointment and sorrow. In our year Bible reading plan that we started this past year, we were in the book of Job because we're doing a chronological reading plan. So we're in the depths of Job. If you're reading that with me, you know what that's like. To be launched into the sorrow of Job, that makes you ask questions like, what is the good life? What is the good life? What, how do I experience good when I'm a person like Job? And we can easily get distracted and lost. I, I, I have to confess this, but it's, it really kind of woke me up a little bit. This week, I was driving home, and I have a short drive from here to where I live on the north side. And I was driving around Manning, going to take a left turn, and I was just simply following the car in front of me. How many of you do follow the car in front of you? Follow, just, you know, I'm just trying to drive. The, this, you know, they say you're supposed to drive at the pace of traffic. So I was driving pace of traffic, the car in front of me, except the car in front of me definitely turned into oncoming traffic. (laughs) That is not a situation when you want to be following the car in front of you, except that's exactly what I did. And so thankfully there was no cars there, but we turned right into the wrong side of the street. And I thought, I cannot believe this is happening. I can, I mean, struggling to stop. Okay, stopped, and I just went over the median. And I was fine, thankfully. And the other car, too, yes, the other car was fine. The, uh, the other car, by the way, went further down the road. But, and then all the, all the while when we got back on the road and we're going the direction we wanted to go, I just looked over and said, what were you doing? What were you doing? But when you're not paying attention, you get lost. And I think that way about what we believe is good and not. Like, the world is going to offer us lots of ideas about what is good. And it's going to have some ideas, but these options, they're shortcuts, they're algorithms, these promises, easy promises, they don't last. They don't last, and they leave us where we begin, which is in death and darkness and disappointment. And when we encounter God's word, we experience by God speaking to us is we experience his invitation. We experience his invitation to embrace what is truly good, and that is in relationship with God. What is truly good is in relationship with God, that the good life is experienced in relationship with God, and it is eternally true. It lasts forever. The background of 1 John is interesting, fascinating, and worth noting, so we need to spend some time to understand what is the book I've put in front of you to read, because we need to understand a little bit about what this is. And these first few verses here are a prologue, really, to a letter. But what's unusual is this letter does not say who it's from or who it's written by. If you noted that, if you're used to Paul's other letters, you'll see, oh, Paul's just signing off. He's writing this letter at the very beginning. But first, second, third John, you get the picture that these letters are all written by an elder and pastor. And as tradition is rightly assumed, it connects 
these letters with the writings of John the Apostle. John the Apostle, who also had a big hand in the prophetic writings of Revelation. And so John the Apostle is writing these things later in his life. Tradition tells us that John ended up caring for the churches in and around Ephesus. And at some point with his age, I would imagine, he can't exactly make all the trips to the different churches. So what he does in a context that he knows with people he knows is he puts together these letters and he writes them intimately and personally. And he sends them out as his care, knowing the concerns taking place in the church's lives. What we know about John, and I imagine John is familiar to many of us, is that he was part of Jesus' inner circle. He was part of the inner circle, a disciple that Jesus loved, is what his own gospel tells us. It's even possible that he was related to Jesus as a cousin. Like, this is how closely he was tied to the person of Jesus and his life on earth. And tradition tells us, like I already mentioned, that in Ephesus, he led the church there. So my question here, before we get to 1 John and the meat of it, is how does 1 John relate to us? We're in Edmonton, Alberta, 2022. I like saying that more. It helps me actually remember. It's actually 2022. 2022, how does this relate to us? Well, 1 John, one of the things that is beautiful about it is beautifully simple and yet so complex in how deeply it talks about the Christian walk in faith. It is so, it's so profound what it talks about, but as you read it, it so simply comes off the page. That's one of the reasons I love this book. But the other thing, too, is it draws us to the back to the basics. What I find is this is a back to the basics. What is it like to follow Jesus? And how do we do that? Because he's speaking to people he believes know the way of Jesus. Know the way, how to follow God in life. They know something of the gospel of the good news. But they, it helps to be reminded. He speaks with them assuming they know what this way is like. And the other thing I want to mention is that John, in his own way, is addressing what he hears as false teaching for people following Jesus. He has heard about, we can see clues along the way in the book, of how people have fallen astray. They were followers of Jesus, and now they've fallen astray. And they, one of the things we learn, um, I will note the details along the way as we preach through the book, but it is specifically about confusion over who Jesus is. It's hard to kind of build a systematic argument. What is this position that they're talking about? And we'll say more about that. But it, is, it, is, it goes back to the core of who is Jesus? Who is this person, Jesus, who was born in a manger, who lived in Galilee, who died on the cross and rose again? Who is this person? What John writes as we step into the first verse, so if you have your Bible open, you can go there and think and reflect on the word right in front of you. He wants to say, we want to tell you about the one who was from the beginning. From the very beginning. That which was from the beginning. And immediately when you see that in Scripture, Scripture, I like to think, the Bible is talking to itself. All over the place. Talking to the Old Testament, the New Testament. All these different references. And honestly, when we have, you know, even when we spend a lot of time studying the Word, it can go right over our heads. But, it's talking to itself. When you hear, see the words in the beginning, that which from the beginning, immediately I want you to go to Genesis and to even John's own gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made, the word. And even Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The beginning that's noted here is rooted in the experience of the first followers of Jesus in the early church. This beginning goes back to creation, but it also goes back to the witness of Jesus in Nazareth and Galilee and Jerusalem. It is rooted in the fact that they saw him move through this time. And there's two essential things I see. What we have seen, what we have heard. It's all connected to what Jesus actually did during that time. It's connected to the idea of the Christian message. That because these people have seen, have heard, have felt, experienced Jesus, that they have the Christian message embedded in them. And John wants them to know that, to receive that, and to also receive the blessings associated with that. The other thing, too, that John wants us to see is not just that this is about the Christian message, but it is about Jesus himself as the word. That Jesus as the word is also the message. You cannot separate the word from the message. They are one and the same. And what they witnessed when God as the word came down was that God dwelled among them. That the word has been made known. I think of all these connections with Advent and this connection of this season of anticipating the birth of Christ. Well, here it is. Jesus was born, and all these things associated with that message, that promise, that revelation. And for the very first time you hear in this verse, this, this we proclaimed concerning the word of life. We could hear some of the doubt, John's concerns of the doubts, the doubts that might be in his, that he knows are in the minds of other people. Did Jesus really? Did God really become human? Did God really become human? Did he live physically in the world? Did he rub shoulders next to his followers, to all people on the town square? Did he actually do that kind of thing? It's about the incarnation. That's the subtitle that Ed mentioned, that God would put on human flesh. And to doubt that or to question that actually brings up a question of the salvation Christ also promises. But in the mind of John and in the followers he wants to walk with, he, he wants us to know and have in our mind the verses of Hebrews where he says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. He's spoken to us by himself. And it's also why Paul, in his letters, he encourages, we preach Christ. That, that is Corinthians language for me. We preach Christ. He is encouraging that. But to go a little further and just to dive into what John is saying here, look at the verse here. Verse 1, which we have, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard and we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. Think about how the disciples looked and touched Jesus. Or I think of Thomas after the resurrection, doubting that Jesus had really come back from the grave. And then Jesus and his grace and mercy just, can you feel these wounds? They have seen, heard, touched, felt the risen Jesus. And so 1 John immediately comes out as a firsthand witness. Yes, it's removed because it is later in the early church, thinking, you know, 100, 100 AD, if that makes sense. Like, it is later into that first century, but at the same time, this is someone speaking, I saw Jesus. I saw him. He rose again. And I think sometimes, you know, it's been very cold the past few weeks here. That's no secret to anyone. But I sometimes humorously try to figure out, how do I explain to my family how cold it actually is here? Because it doesn't seem like a screenshot does justice to it. I mean, I can make the jokes like, oh, it's Celsius. Just remove the minus sign. You know, I, I can do that. 
Um, but I, uh, that doesn't quite explain it. And I had a similar experience of this because I tried a new and amazing thing, which is the pomelo fruit. If I say pomelo fruit, do any of you know what I'm talking about? If you say, if you know it, I need to see your hands. This is the validation I need. Okay, I, pomelo fruit. So I've never had a pomelo fruit, but Christy and I, we have a practice, which is when we go to the store, we try to encourage the kids to pick out something new. And like a fun new fruit or vegetable, we're going to try it. We're going to cut it open. And of course, one day we fell upon the pomelo fruit, which is amazing. Um, it, I'm going to tell you some facts about the pomelo. You will, know, you will come away knowing things about the pomelo. We have some images up here that you can see as I'm talking. But it is a highly nutritious fruit. 400% of the daily value of vitamin C, pomelo. Vitamin A, pomelo, full of fiber, it's rich in antioxidants, it's antibacterial, anti-inflammatory, it boosts your heart health, and it tastes delicious. Now, it's close to a grapefruit. If you're wanting a frame of reference, it's a grapefruit, but it is way better than a grapefruit. It is way better than a grapefruit. Now, it's got this like sort of cushy exterior. I had to look up at a video how to cut it open because I had no idea. But I tried it. And I can say that this is not a grapefruit, and I know the difference. It was a, specifically a, a honey pomelo. I need to qualify that as honey pomelo. But I've seen it, I felt it, and I know what it is. And so I look at a person writing this book at the very beginning, and he is knows of the person he's speaking of, Jesus Christ. He knows it. But do we Are we trying to make decisions about our life and our Christian walks without truly diving down to to the presence of God or knowing who Jesus is and what he desires and allowing that to shape who we are in this world? Do we really know it? It's the reason that that John has this experience, and I hope that we do in some way, that he calls the church, to proclaim the word of life in Jesus. This is this term for life that's come down, the word of life in Jesus. So it's important to ask, what is the life meant here? What is the life, the word of life? It sounds different a little bit than the beginning of First John, but similar. Well, this life pertains to Jesus. It's the life he brings. It's the life he offers. This is to say that others can, you know, you can experience physical life, but this spiritual existence of life is only accessible through relationship with Jesus. And then if you received it, it causes a shift in your life. It causes a shift in your life. Later in 1 John, he'll say this, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. That this life, receiving life, takes us from death to life. I think of some other places in the New Testament specifically that talk about the life, the word of life. What is this? You know, angels appear to the apostles after they set them free from the prisons in Acts. And, he said, and the angels say this, go stand in the temple courts. Tell the people all about this new life. Paul in Philippians urges the, the Philippians to become children of God so they can shine like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. The life God offers is of the same eternal quality that God is himself. It's eternal as God is eternal. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. 
Jesus says that he is life. That he is the source and substance of all eternal life. So that if that is what we desire, if that is the good life we desire, then we should in every way pursue Jesus with our lives, with everything we have. For he is the one who came. The manifestation of the life-giving force of all things that came into being. So John at the beginning says, we saw him come. We saw this life come down. Read the next verse here. And this is what he proclaims. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. This is the life, Jesus, who was with the Father and now chose to came down to be with us. You know, this proclamation, this witness, this sharing, this testimony, it has a purpose. It has a point to it, which if you haven't already anticipated, you can see it. There's a point to why this life came down. Read the next verse with me too. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard. He's repeating himself a little bit. We have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. This witness that he has witnessed, he receives it and takes it on in his life with purpose so that you can have fellowship with us. That's what he says. So that the people he's writing to can have fellowship with the people following Jesus and so that they also can have fellowship with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this short few verses, packed prologue, reflects on the incarnation, the word of life, the being of all things good, and then takes us to fellowship, where it says, this is what ultimately matters. This is the point. You think about the gospel and the good news. If someone asked you on the street, what is the gospel? What would you say? You know, you can look at the gospels and see a really sort of built out answer to what the gospel is, that I am saved as I proclaim the lordship of Jesus Christ, that he died for my sins and rose again, that I might experience new life. But that new life is drawn in connection with the fellowship of the, with God, that we're called to fellowship with him and with each other, that by drawn into fellowship with God, we are drawn to true fellowship with each other. And this is the kind of love, the depth that John calls us to in this book. And you think of all churches you've been a part of, all seasons of your life, and this is always the challenge, to be faithful to Jesus and at the same time also practice Holy Spirit-empowered fellowship, just like what we envision and see in the communion within the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Spirit loving each other, serving each other, humbling themselves before each other. And we as a church, as a community following Jesus are called to the same thing. Fellowship here, I think that there's a number of different ways to define it. Koinonia, household, fellowship. There's different ways that the New Testament interprets it. But the simplest way is having in common what the other has in common. So, for me, I mean, I, I don't know how much you know all my sort of specific interests or not, but if you walked up to me and wanted to go into a deep dive with Star Wars lore and new canon conversation, I would talk with you about those things. I would. I'm, I'm definitely a Star Wars nerd. Or if you wanted to go into deep dive of here's who the most improved player should be for the NBA season, I'll go there with you. We'd have that in common if you know, if you know that conversation. 
But what you have in common, it draws you together. It draws you together. And I think, okay, if that's the case, if that happens in you know, a, a conversation here at church, what happens if it is the word of life that draws people together, that actually is what have in common? What's it like for you to have in common the being an entity and power of, the, of, the, of what's available in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? What happens then? Well, that's what anticipates John's next verse. If we are found in the fellowship, true fellowship, with God the Father, Son, and Spirit, and we are then drawn into fellowship with one another, the result is joy. The result is joy. Read this last verse, because it definitely explains more why John is writing what he's writing. And it's very short. We write this to make our joy complete. That John, who knows these people, he loves these people. His work as a pastor and elder is not done until they have experienced the full blessing of the good news and the joy that's available in fellowship with God. And that if they have not experienced that or shared, that they are missing out. They are not participating in the good life. They're outside of it. John's concern, as I've already said, is that they would be led astray, and he's wanting to lead them back in. And that's what I would say to you. I don't want any of us to be led astray. I would want us to be led back in. Led back into the joy that's available in the fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so it brings up some obvious questions of, how, what is God doing through this fellowship? What is God doing? How is he shaping the world in light of this fellowship? So I want to just make a few notes here as a kind of a conclusion, reflection on these first few verses as we're launching out. And one of the things is that we are called to true fellowship, not anything anyone should settle for. We are called to true fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Spirit. So much so that I would hope, as you know me or as you know people in your life, you would know that I walk with Jesus. Or you would know when someone walks with Jesus. When you bump up with someone, you feel the love of God at work in their lives through gentleness, compassion, through firmness and courage. And you sense this. You experience it. It's almost intangible. But at the same time, when you come next to someone you know, Jesus is walking in step through you. And this fellowship is both the cause and the result of the word of life, if you think about it that way. The fellowship, the invitation, the experience of the fellowship, it doesn't just leave you there. It actually draws you forward. And it is the result of Jesus coming and revealing that this fellowship is available and accessible Jesus came to us as the word of life to perfectly reveal God to us. The Christian life then, and I, I say this loving my, my academics and all my intellectuals, all the people I've read that informed and shaped me, but it, the Christian life is intended to be experienced. It's not meant to be thought through. The Christian life is meant to be experienced because it's following Jesus. It's meant to be lived out and embodied, practiced, not conceptualized or configured or intellectually grasped. And so what's lo- we lose out on the experience of the fellowship if we make it a head exercise when it is a heart, mind, and body exercise in the context of community with both the people here on earth and the covenant community of the eternal kingdom of God. One of the last things that I want to mention also and is that in addition to this being necessarily in relationship with God, there are some dangerous assumptions that we can make in church that I want to note here. 
I have a longer quote, and I'm going to give some summaries of it here. So bear with me with the longer quote. But one of the commentators I read this week I found very helpful is a biblical scholar by the name of I. Howard Marshall. So he talks about two dangerous assumptions in this passage. Here's one. One danger is the assumption that Christian fellowship is possible other than on the basis of common belief in Christ. Some people would almost go so far as to say that Christian unity means Christians of different beliefs coming together in fellowship. Let me say a little more before I explain that. It is easy enough, they say, to have Christian unity with those of the like mind, but the real test of Christian unity is whether we are willing to have it with those with whom we disagree. Now, what I hear in that, and I want to help you understand, is I agree with them in the sense that We are called to be with people that unity and uniformity are not the same thing. That we are going to be around people that are different than ourselves. And that's good. That's how God's called us to be. But not so when it comes to key affirmations of faith. What he also says is it's not true that we can have true fellowship with other people who disagree in central affirmations of faith. I'm going to finish the quote here and explain it. The other danger is the assumption that that it is possible to have a true relationship with God while rejecting Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. So the two assumptions that I think he's highlighting here, because I'm summarizing because I realize it's a long quote and I might have even checked out if I heard that, is this, that true Christian fellowship is possible even if you don't share the same beliefs about Jesus. That is the dangerous assumption he's saying that you might read into this way of following Christ. That we cannot experience true fellowship if we don't see Jesus in the same way. The other assumption is that fellowship with God is possible even if you reject Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. So there's a limitation to how much we can experience fellowship with other people if they don't have the same convictions of Jesus. I am not talking about friendships or neighbors, people you support, people who support you, or even family but we must look at what true fellowship is as a higher ideal than what the word has given us, as a greater good than what the world has given us. And we have to say the same thing about what fellowship with God actually is, what communion with God actually is, that apart from Jesus, there is no fellowship with God, that we must in some way relate to God through the mediation of Christ. So then naturally, as I invite the worship team to come up and just lead us into reflection, confession, You ask, what does it take to get in this fellowship? How do I get in this fellowship with God? How do I maintain relationship with How do you maintain relationship with anyone? It is through the time and intentionality you put into relationships over years and years, commitment and presence, and it is through the mediation of Jesus, which is why he came in the first place. It's why the word of life came to you and I in the first place. This whole book is built on the doubt that Jesus actually came. If he did come in your life, then how do you make decisions in light of that? Taking steps each day more and more and more into the fellowship with God. With the purpose of this book, he kind of highlights at the very end that I'll read for us in 1 John 5. He says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know what he hears us, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked for, asked of him. 
This is intended to bring us to confidence and faith. If at any point you heard me reflect and think about what is happening in the word of life, if you believe Jesus was born, that he died and was raised and he came for you, that this is sure confidence that you've been welcomed into the fellowship with God and that God is working in your heart and life through all time and all seasons to draw you deeper into those relationships, into that space, because there is no other name but Jesus that does this, that brings assurance to this. But we all, whether we've been following Christ for a long time or a short time, must lay claim to that life. Lay claim to the good life. Lay claim to the first love. Henry Nouwen says this, and it speaks to what this is like to lay claim. The spiritual life that starts at the moment that you can go beyond all the wounds and claim that there was a love that was perfect and unlimited. Long before that perfect love became reflected in the imperfect and limited conditional love of people, the spiritual life starts where you dare to claim the first love. How have you claimed God's first love for you? And what's been the result of that in your life? Or how is that an encouragement and comfort to you right now in the weariness of winter and times when we are not doing normal life the way we want it to be? How is laying claim to that a comfort to you? And how is that leading you to joy? Because that is what God came, and that's why John writes and why Jesus came himself, that we would experience full joy, not in the small goods along the way, not in the conditional love of people, but in the eternal love of God, the life-giving force of Jesus. And so I welcome you to that, that this time of worship is about us beholding and proclaiming the word of life, because that is central to all things, that we focus and arrange our lives around that, that that is the good that we seek, because it will last the test of time through all seasons, whenever this pandemic subsides to something else, that God's word will stand firm and strong forever. And so as we attend to this book and the counsel of the letter, God breathing and inspiring us to follow him, we will follow Jesus too. And we'll do it together. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that you would help us all individually and then corporately to behold the word of life. That we would look back at different times in our life and confess and name that we have seen you moved. We felt you move. We've seen you change and transform others' lives and our lives. And we will live in response to it. Lord, I pray your grace would be upon us that if we do not know how to respond, that you would lead us to confessing you are Lord Jesus. You did rescue us and I don't have to hold all this baggage or beat myself up with how I feel inside. But Lord, instead, you would want to set me free. That you would want to complete this path that leads to joy. So I pray in this morning, Sunday, January 9th, that you would breathe life into us and lead us to your joy and that you would make yourself known to us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray, amen.